invite you, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Romans chapter 3 as we continue our study of Paul's magnificent letter, Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> if you remember, we are in the middle of a conversation <clears throat> that Paul is having with the Jews. Um, at least he's writing that way. These are, these are discussions and arguments, debates that Paul would be having with his fellow countrymen, uh, men and women who uh, believed that being Jewish was sufficient for salvation, and Paul is desperate to uh, help them to see the truth that they might come to Christ and be saved. Uh, Paul, in chapter 2, has already made the, uh, the argument that <clears throat> they, the Jews, simply by having the law, is... Uh, Having the law is no protection from the law, and, um, and we're going to find here in chapter 3 some arguments that Jews would raise, and I'll explain that as we go through. Just want to um, sort of set your mind to what are we reading here in the first eight verses. We're reading um, arguments that the Jews would make and then Paul's response to them. So let's pick it up in Romans chapter 3. We'll read the first, I'm going to read the first nine, uh, first. Um, 10 verses, and I apologize, you won't have the last two up there, but if you have your Bible open, uh, you'll be just fine. Let's give our attention, Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? That would be an, uh, uh, an objection raised by the Jew. Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul's response, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Here's another objection. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul's response, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here's another objection. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Paul's response, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, the Jew again would say, uh, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Just as some people slanderously charge us with saying, Paul's response, their condemnation is just. What then, Paul says, are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. <clears throat> well, God, we believe that these are the oracles of God, the words of God that we have before us this morning, and by Your Holy Spirit, You have not only inspired them to be written, but Lord, You open our minds and hearts to receive them. And so we submit to this uh, this miracle of revelation that you've given to us and ask, Lord, you would do that work right now, today, in our hearts. Uh, open our eyes to see our need and to see the glory of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a new book out, a biography on the life of Jack Miller, C. John Miller. Uh, he was a pastor in the OPC, a pastor and an evangelist. I think Don and Sue McCrory actually had the privilege of worshiping uh, in his church uh, years ago. Uh, but Jack Miller started a revival of sorts uh, in the OPC as he um, focused deeply on the, the reality of human sin and, the, and the, the power of the gospel. One of his sayings uh, that he sort of became known for, the, the title of the book is Cheer Up. And that comes from one of his sayings where he would uh, be talking to people or they would come to him with some concern about some struggle with sin that they're having in their life. 
uh, their disappointment of uh, not being as sanctified as, as they want to be or had hoped to be. And, and Miller's response would be, uh, cheer up, you are far worse than you imagine, <laughs> but more loved than you ever dared to dream. You're far worse than you imagine and more loved than you ever dared hope. It's a, it's a very counterintuitive but very helpful and insightful thing to say. Imagine counseling someone this way if, if they came to you with those concerns of, I'm struggling with this sin or, or, or that sin and I just... Um, I really don't know how to break the bondage of it. It's, like it's got a grip in my life. And you said to them, cheer up. You're far, far worse than that. Uh, you've, just, you've just touched the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there's a whole mountain of sin underneath this little thing we're talking about. And, and you, might, uh, you might think, well, how would that be helpful to someone? And of course, it's not all that you want to say to them, but, it, but it's a very helpful thing to say. And the, the reason it's a very helpful thing to say is that people often come to counseling or to a pastor or, may, or to a friend uh, looking to fix the problem. And when, when it comes to the problem of sin, the, the truth is we can't fix it. Sin is not a humanly fixable problem. So, so when Miller says, cheer up, you're far worse than you imagine, what he's trying to do is, is, is lead people to give up on their fix-it program, uh, to, to, to stop um, hoping that they can make this better through the application of, of uh, this means or that technique. It forces us, you see, to abandon hope in ourselves. We can't fix the sin problem. Not one of them. You can maybe push it down, a certain sin issue you're dealing with, but it's just going to pop up in some other area. Um, what, what Miller is trying to do is just um, abandon all hope of, of fixing yourself when it comes to the sin issue. It, your sin problem is vastly greater than you even imagine, far beyond your ability to resolve. And so we're going to have to look for hope somewhere else, and that someplace else is the gospel, where we find in Jesus Christ that we are more loved than we ever dared hope. Uh, that's precisely what Paul is trying to do in this portion of his letter as he's speaking to Jews, his countrymen. He wants them to understand the truth about sin so that they understand that, that their identity as, as the children of Abraham and their uh, relationship with the law of Moses are powerless to fix their sin problem so that they could, be, that they could come to Christ and be saved. As Paul says in, in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his Jewish countrymen, is that they may be saved. Paul had a burden on his heart for his fellow Jews. It broke his heart that they were clinging to things that could not rescue them on the day of judgment. And so his goal is to strive to show them their need for Christ, that they might come to Christ and be saved. And that's exactly the same uh, goal that the Word of God has for us this morning. As we've said, uh, Paul has already been uh, talking about uh, the fact that there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles, which would have been a tremendous shock and a deep offense to Jews, uh, because their identity as Jews is, by definition, not Gentile. 
And so for Paul to say, actually, you know, uh, Abraham, uh, there's, there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short. You see, the Jews, yes, you have the law, but you didn't keep the law. And so you're just as lost and just as worthy of condemnation as any homosexual Gentile. That is it's astonishingly offensive to a Jewish or a self-righteous Jewish man or woman. And they would have objections. And here in our text, Paul gives us several of them. And we'll look at them and see Paul's response. The first objection would relate to the value of circumcision. Uh, Paul has just said at the end of chapter 2 that circumcision really has no value. It has value if you obey the law, but if you disobey the law, your circumcision becomes like uncircumcision. You're just like a Gentile. You're disobedient. And so the objection, 3 verse 1, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? You see, uh, Paul seems to be attacking a fundamental doctrine, not just a Jewish doctrine, a biblical doctrine. Because the whole Old Testament is a story of God's covenant relationship with the Jews. God didn't go to uh, you know, several nations and say, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. He said it to one man, one nation, Abraham and his descendants. And so the biblical evidence says that the Jews are not like the surrounding nations and that God had made covenant promises to them to bless them, to be a God to them, to protect them from their enemies, to shelter them in the day of judgment. And Paul seems to, to making, be making a direct assault on that fundamental truth. If breaking the law of God makes you as though you were uncircumcised, which he just said in 2.25, well, then what's the value of circumcision? If God doesn't make any distinction when it comes to the judgment day between Jew and Gentile, well, what's the advantage of being a Jew? It's a very good question. And it's an important question because it shows that they understand what he's doing. They, they realize that Paul is attacking the basis of their assurance. They don't like it, but at least they understand what he's doing. They don't just say, Paul, you're just being mean. No, they, they realize that Paul is going after a fundamental assumption of the Jewish community. Imagine witnessing to someone... And uh, it's an unbeliever. Um, I've had these conversations. In fact, I remember a conversation I had with a man um, who was just really uh, stuck in uh, drunkenness, alcoholism, and uh, his marriage was falling apart. And trying to talk to him about his need for Jesus and the gospel. And he just just refused to, to admit that he actually needed that. And the way he did it, the way he just kept brushing that off was saying, I, I walked the aisle when I was 12 years old. I went, uh, you know, went to a Baptist church and, and they did the altar call and I went forward and I asked Jesus into my heart. Problem solved. And his life was, had no resemblance of anything that, that would uh, suggest that he was a Christian. And so as I'm trying to press the law, well, you know, then there's this, well, but I'm a good guy. I have good intents and, and I, you know, I, I've got things under control. Be, that's what sinners naturally do, right? We, we naturally try to avoid the charge that we actually deserve to be condemned. I remember talking to another uh, young man uh, more recently, and 
uh, and I said, if, if you were to die tonight and God said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And he said, I would say, I am an extremely generous person. I'm the most generous person I know. In fact, I'm, I'm too generous. That's what he would say. Well, it's wonderfully honest. But it, um, if it, when you continue to press then and say, well, um, actually, the Bible says that if you break the law in one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And, and even if you only sin once, uh, you're, you're going to go to hell. That's what the Bible says, because the glory of God is, is so magnificent that one sin is worthy of an eternity of condemnation. And, and his response then maybe would be, well, then what's the point of being good? What's the point of trying hard? If, I mean, if I just blow it once and I'm, and I'm condemned to hell, what's the point of doing my best to be a good person? Well, that's exactly the question the Jews are asking. And again, it's a very good question because it shows they're getting it. Um, Paul's answers is not what we would probably assume. We might assume that Paul would say, there's no advantage. But that's not what he says. What he says is, um, the Jews had been given great advantages. They, um, they had been given the oracles of God. They'd been given the covenant. He'll say this in other places in his letters, right? Theirs are the, the prophets. Theirs are the promises. They had tremendous advantages, but those advantages come with a responsibility. Imagine you had a young man in your, ho- in, your, in your home, 16 years old, and he'd been waiting to get his driver's license for years, and uh, now he finally has it in his hand. But then he does something foolish, and as an act of loving discipline, you take away driving privileges for a month. And he complains. And he says, what's the point of being 16 and having a driver's license if I can't even drive? And you would say, well, there's all kinds of advantages to being 16. One of them being you get to have a driver's license. But with that license comes an obligation to act like a responsible human being. And if you cannot do that, then the, uh, then the advantage is lost. That's what Paul is saying to his Jewish 16-year-olds. What's the advantage of being a Jew? There's much advantage. Verse 2. To begin with, they've been entrusted with the oracles. That means the, the words. The very words of God. What an incredible blessing the Jews had received in this. You see, um, God had chosen to reveal himself by way of prophets to them in a way he had not revealed himself to any other nation. There were, um, northern nations had prophets raised up among them that God raised up to speak divine truth to them. The kings of Egypt are worshiping dung beetles. Why? Because they know in their heart there is a God, but they don't have divine revelation to reveal who He is and how He is to be worshipped. This is not a little thing. This is life. This is light in, in a dark, dark world. And the Jews had received it, entrusted with the very words of God. But those words come with a responsibility. Those words come with the obligation to receive them and to believe them and to obey them. And that's where the Jews had failed. It's a sobering thought, I think, for so many of us who've been born and raised in Christian homes and in the church. We've had inestimable privileges. My dad read the Bible uh, nearly every single night. 
we had supper, obviously, after chores and be late at night, but when the meal was done, Dad would pull out the Bible, and we just read chapter, 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 all the way through the Bible several times. What an amazing gift that is. The vast majority of the people in the world have no sense of that. They grew up without any of God's words spoken into their life. No light to penetrate the darkness. I was uh, flying to Houston this week for home missions meeting, uh, Austin, excuse me, and got my work done, and so I um, watched an old movie, Gravity, Sandra Bullock, and um, there's a really poignant scene in there where she's lost in space, if you haven't seen the movie, and she's, she's all alone, and she's, uh, there's been a tragedy, a, 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 an accident, and the other astronauts have died, and she's, she's all alone, and trying to figure out how to get back to Earth, and it doesn't look like it's going to be possible, and she says, she's crying, sitting alone in this little capsule, and says, I should pray, but no one ever showed me how. No one ever showed me how. And that just brought tears to my eyes. I think, how many, how many people live and die alone, never crying out to the Lord because no one taught them how? No one told them about Jesus. No one said that if you call in the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And what, a, what an incredible blessing for those of us who were taught how. Our mom and our dad told us from a very young age about the gospel. They taught us how to pray. And they read scripture to us. Or maybe if you were converted later in life, you had the same experience, just some, a, a friend, co-worker. Somebody, somebody opened up the Bible to you and gave you the words of God and taught you how to pray and, and helped you grow in your Christian life. We've received, you see, this incredible treasure but having that treasure will not save us. Growing up in a Christian home will not protect you on the day of judgment. In fact, having the word of God spoken into your life will only testify against you on that last day unless we keep the word of God. You see, if we do not come to Christ to be saved, then the great inestimable advantage of having the word of God will only condemn us on that last day. And friends, I am convinced that no one will be more scorned in hell than those who went there from a Christian home and from the pews of a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church where you had the truth, you had the light. God spoke to you, spoke over your life. You remember what Jesus says um, to the towns of Bethsaida and Chorazin when he says to them, woe to you, the people of Tyre and Sidon, pagan, Gentile, uh, cities to the north, the people of Tyre and Sidon will rise up on the last day and condemn you, for if they had seen the miracles that I performed among you, if they had seen them, they had, would have repented in dust and ashes a long time ago. It's an awful thing to go to hell from a Bible, from a Christian home and from a Bible-believing church. And Paul is speaking to the Jews and telling them, yes, you've had the advantages, but have you taken advantage of the advantage? You've had the privileges. And his point is, no, they have not. The second objection is concerning God's faithfulness. The objection is, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? The point here simply is that God promised over and over in the Scriptures that He would be faithful to His covenant, even if the people were unfaithful. God would be faithful. 
And Paul seems to be saying, well, that God was unfaithful, that, that, that God, if, if God judges Jews for their sin the same way he judges Gentiles for their sin, what happened to the covenant? And Paul's answer in verse 4 says, um, By no means is God being unfaithful. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul just establishes the principle that God is true. And that means he's not just honest, he's reliable, that, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Not a single word of God drops to the ground. Every word of God is true. It's reliable. So so we can't even begin to think that God is being unfaithful to what he has promised. The question is, what has he promised? What he's promised is that if Israel keeps the law, they will be blessed. And if they flagrantly and unrepentantly break the law and rebel against the law, then they will be punished. God is being true when he punishes Jews for their unrepentant sin. And he uses an illustration from Psalm 51, verse 4. This is David's confession of of, uh, uh, when he ascended with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And Nathan the prophet comes and says, you are the man. And David in Psalm 51, verse 4 says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David is saying to God, God, if you should condemn me to to death for this sin, you would be right. You would be just. I would have no complaint, for you would be magnifying the, the, the glory of your truth and your righteousness and your holiness by condemning a sinner like me. That's what he says. Doug Moose says the words of God include warnings that God will judge sin as well as promises that he will bless his people. Because of this, the Old Testament insists that God is equally faithful when he judges his people's sin and when he fulfills his promises to bless. God is faithful in both. Faithful to his covenant. Faithful to his word. And in his faithfulness, you see, as God judges sinners, he manifests his holiness and truth. And when, when you come under Holy Spirit conviction for your sin, that will, be, that will be the sense that you have. Psalm 51 verse 4 will be familiar to you. When you, when you have genuine Spirit-given conviction of your sin, you, you will acknowledge the fact that your sin actually in truth deserves condemnation. And that if God should open up the ground beneath you and drop you into eternal hell, you would have no complaint. God would be right. God would be just. He would be true. And he would get glory in his just response to your rebellion. It's a key part of spirit conviction. But it's not what we naturally do. It's not what sinners normally do. What we normally do is we look to blame or justify ourselves. We maybe blame others or our circumstances or even blame God. And and in a sense, that's what you have in verses 5 through 8. The third objection concerning the justice of God. Notice it's in verses 5 and 7 most clearly. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Verse 7, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If my sin makes God look good, 
If my unrighteousness manifests his righteousness, then why does God still condemn me? He ought to be thanking me. He needs me. The brazenness of the argument is stunning. Imagine a man charged with attempted murder saying to the judge, yes, it's true, judge, that I tried to kill the guy, but the fact of the matter is he didn't die. And um, if you read the papers, judge, you'll notice that it's been... The man himself says it's the best thing that ever happened to him. He's completely transformed his life. He's given up drinking. Uh, He's now uh, spending more time at home. He's actually even going to church. It's the best thing that happened to him. So why am I still being charged? Well, the answer is because you broke the law. It's against the law to shoot people regardless of the salutary effects it might produce. And so the man is justly condemned. And Paul says that's exactly the same for the Jew. They're justly condemned. He says, if, if it were so, that if, if we could make this argument that if my sin glorifies God, then I shouldn't be charged, well, then Paul says, well, how could God judge the world at all? There couldn't be any judgment. Why not let us say then, let us do evil, that good may result, right? Let's just go shoot people uh, so that they transform their life. And Paul's uh, terse response Very tense, very short. Their condemnation is deserved. You want to talk like that? You want to say something that foolish? That flippant? That outrageously wicked to God? Go ahead. But your condemnation is all on you and well-deserved. The conclusion of the debate is in verses 9 and 10. What then? Are we Jews? Notice we Jews, not just you Jews. Paul's a Jew. Are we Jews any better off? Not have we had advantages. Yes, we've had advantages. Are we better off? No, we're not. Not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. I love how Paul here, as he's talking, it's, it's we Jews. It's not just pointing his fingers at other people. I'm not righteous, Paul is saying. No one is righteous. We are all under sin, every single one of us, all worthy of condemnation. Why does he want us to know that? Because he's desperate that we get the gospel. You see, when, when we're able to face the, the fact that we're far worse than we ever imagined and flee all of our hopes in self-salvation projects, then we're finally able to see the gospel for what it is. That God loved us when we were sinners, when we were rebels, when, when there was an, just a mountain, mountain of sin in our life that we could never repay, never fix. We were absolutely without hope lost in outer space in the, in the darkness alone, no hope of ever being saved unless God would intervene. And God intervened. That's who Jesus came to die for. See, Paul's writing this letter to the church. He's writing to the church, to those in Rome loved by God and called to be saints. But he's writing this to them so that they also never forget their need for grace, that they never forget what they were by fallen nature. 
Sinners under the condemnation of the law. That they never forget the love, the, the magnificent love of God that reached out and, and grabbed them. And the grace of Jesus Christ bought on the cross that embraced and washed and renewed them. It's so important. You see, the, the church can forget these things. You understand that? The church can assume all this stuff. The church can just, we just live our Christian life together and we, and we don't talk about these things. We, those are things that we already know, things that we've already done in a sense. And they don't form us. And you know what happens in a church when those truths don't form you? The reality of your desperately lost condition and the glory of the gospel, when those truths don't form you, you just get a plastic shallow veneer of moralism and Christianity light. And you get, you get anger and cynicism and despair. Inability to love, inability to forgive. Inability to, to, to have transformed lives because you don't have the freedom to actually talk about your need for a transformed life. You're in, a, in the middle of a church full of, 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 of sinful people who, who are pretending it's not true. And so who do you go and say, I have a, a desperate struggle with pornography and it's killing me? Or my marriage is absolutely falling apart and I don't know what to do. And it happens all the time. In churches where this truth is overlooked, this truth is missed, it's assumed. And then people wonder why they don't have any joy in their life. Well, because you haven't touched the, the, the gold, you haven't gotten to the, the good stuff. You're far, far worse than you had ever imagined and more deeply loved than you ever dared to hope. And all because of Jesus Christ. And you see, that truth, you see, will humble you. That truth will finally give you the ability to let down the grudge that you have against someone else. Or finally allow you to forgive someone for the genuine wound that you received. You'll be able to let it go because their sin pales when you, when you think about your own. And you realize the grace that you've received, how, how could you possibly be seeking a pound of flesh in someone else? When God has been so patient and so gracious and so kind with you? You see, this will transform a church. It'll, it'll transform your life. When you meet someone, I, I have this, when I, when I meet someone who's unable to freely acknowledge his own sin and unwillingly to humbly confess that sin and unwilling and unable then to forgive someone else, I just know that I've, I've run into a person who hasn't deeply grasped these truths even when that person is me. And there are absolutely times in my life where I completely forget these things. And I just respond this way, never remembering this, and it's always wreckage. And Jesus always calls me back to this. To the truth of who I am in truth and, and the truth of the gospel for a sinner like me. And that can transform my life and friends, it can transform your life. And that's why God has gathered us to remind us of these things, to teach us these things. That's why we need to talk about the truth about sin. 
Not as an abstract general idea where we just sort of gloss over, yes, we all sin, but real talk about real sin that we actually commit. And we need to have those conversations about our battle with covetousness and greed and and lust and adultery and cheating and lying and anger and impatience and a lack of a forgiving heart and a profound, awful, godless uh, failure to love people. Do we confess things like that? To brothers and sisters, do we beg for forgiveness? Do we run to the gospel knowing that we cannot fix ourselves? How do you you make yourself love people? Actually care for people, particularly, and love them particularly when they wound you. How do you do that? There's only one way by going to the gospel and realizing that you can confess the honest, ugly truth about you. And you can lay hold of a hope greater than you ever imagined precisely because the gospel is true. This will change your life. This will change your church. It will change your community. May God grant it. Amen. Father, we are greater sinners than we ever imagined. And we have failed to love you with all of our heart. We've never once done that. And we failed to love others. We've been so fixated on ourselves. And, and Lord, we've loved uh, the idols of our life. We've served them gladly. And Lord, the rot runs so deep. There's a, there's a bent, twisted truth about our flesh that surprises and stuns us and yet we never understand it for the heart is desperately wicked and beyond understanding. And so, Father, we cannot fix ourselves. We can't fix our marriages. We can't fix our children. We can't fix our own stubborn rebellion. We can't make it better. We can't make it right. We we desperately need Jesus. And oh, I thank you, Father, that the Son of God went to a cross and died there, bearing our sin, that we might be freed from the penalty of sin, that we might be freed from the power of sin, and one day be free completely of the presence of sin. But oh, Father, may these things work in our our heart, these truths, oh God, that, that we adopt a new way of life, that we embrace humility, we embrace kindness and patience, not just as duties we ought to do, but things that flow from us as we embrace the gospel. As we confess our sin and receive the forgiveness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this could be the beginning of conversations in our homes, in our marriages, in our relationships, where we reach out and seek peace and healing and restoration as we humble ourselves, Lord, before you and and gladly live in the love that that we have received. And we give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond just by singing of God's sovereign goodness the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, taken from Romans chapter 13. Let's stand and sing.
encourage you, if the Lord has spoken to you this morning about issues,